uh, stanchions in the River Thames. The stanchions in the River Thames. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 73 of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, your usual host for these get-togethers. And after a bunch of episodes where we talked about the big outside news, mountain biking's unsung heroes... And that two-part special interview with Richard Cunningham that you better have listened to already, we're finally turning back to some tech stuff today for the podcast, where we're going to be delving in to the details. Today, we're going to talk about some of the finer points of bike setup, the details that matter to each of us, and why, the details that matter to other people and maybe we don't understand, and some details that we'd like to see in the future. So there's going to be plenty of arguing on the way. So as usual... I've got my American teammate and fellow Mike here with me, Mike Casimir, who I'm sure will disagree with the details that I think matter more than others. Kaz, I have a question and I need an answer. What do you think is the most overblown detail that mountain bikers think about too much? And why is it the amount of travel they have or believe they need? Mm, That's a tough question there. I feel like you've been beating that dead horse for like, what, 10 years now? (laughs) I think 14, actually. <laughs> 14, 14 years, just constantly telling people I have too much travel. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get into that. I, th- I think that you're wrong probably on that one also, but we'll, we'll discuss be. it soon. Just yeah. that one, though. Everything just else, Levy's one. just <laughs> beacon of truth. And Levy's never wrong. <laughs> so I've also got one of my bosses here who loves the small stuff and has actually been making a bunch of his own small stuff on his 3D printing machine. You guys know that's Brian Park. Brian, don't you also have a CNC mill now? What, what sort of little small detailed things have you been making i do yeah i have a little pocket nc which is a little five axis cnc and my brain is not smart enough to do that so it's taken me like six months to make my first part which is a brake shift adapter so that i can fit my stupid shifter with the iSpec ev thing onto my silly trick stuff levers um Mm. it's very satisfying to do but i feel like for the amount of time that i spent learning to do this i could have like paid myself minimum wage and bought a whole axis drivetrain and just avoided the whole issue. Right, right. iSpec is definitely a detail that we'll have to talk about later mm-hmm. on this podcast. Mm-hmm. iSpec versus Matchmaker. Can we just not? Can we just not? Let's just fit, put that one to bed. Matchmaker, SRAM gets lots of crap for their standards stuff, but we can give them credit for Matchmaker. It's excellent. And iSpec, I get it, but they've done four iterations in the last five years, and it's too many. We're getting dangerously close to criticizing Shimano. If there's one thing I won't stand for, it's anything negative. Oh, lots of arguing today. (laughs) The chips to my French fries, James Smurthwaite, he isn't here with us today, but you just heard the jumper to my sweater, Henry Quinney. Henry, what's the one detail on your own bike that has to be bang on before you go for a ride? Um, I would say something that I can't, you know, everything has to be like, you know, parallel or perpendicular. Everything has to be aligned. Like the saddle has to be exactly bang on. The Garmin unit has to be exactly parallel to the wheel. I can't have anything misaligned. That's just the fundamentals. Isn't there a word for that? Like a, like OCD or something? Sensible. 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 (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That is fair. Yeah. I like that one. Henry, Henry has... All sorts of other details that he is he wrong will, about. Yes, that's exactly where I was going. <laughs> but before we get into arguing about all that stuff and the details that matter and those that don't, Kaz is going to read the news today. Kaz, can you do the news in a British accent? I cannot. That would cause people to turn this off immediately and in, in horror at my British accent. It doesn't even exist. I can't what do accent, accent can you do it in? Uh, American. 
Yeah. Just mm-hmm. a regular nice American accent. Yeah. I'll give it a try though. Some twang, please. Yeah. No, that's Southern. It's different. Yeah. Just this is straight up American East Coast accent. All right. Very <laughs> neutral. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll start off with Aubrey Piron. He reposted a picture of himself on Instagram with cornrows and a caption that included the N-word. And that obviously had some ripples throughout the mountain bike world and the social media world. Um, he later apologized by saying, I reposted a picture, a song, and a term for which I don't understand the true and painful meaning. If I could turn back time, I would change my actions. Yeah, not what we want to be seeing and raises a lot of questions too. I mean, some about whether he knew what he was doing, what repercussions should come from that and how it should be covered also. I'm sort of surprised in today's age, 2021, that anybody would be saying that, especially somebody who, I mean, there's a lot of cases where if somebody said that they would lose their job, their career and everything. I'm not saying that should happen to Emery. But I'm just saying that the awareness is definitely lacking. You're totally right. And it is an awful thing to say. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, going around that anyway. However, and it is a big however, is, is the correct response for that? A young, potentially, you know, potentially stupid person having life-changing consequences to their racing career. When actually he knows it was stupid. We all know it was stupid. Yeah. And it's just deeply insensitive. And it's, I don't know, it's just, it's the people in the comments, like, desperate out for blood. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see, I think with the apology, so often these things happen, and then people go crazy hard on their apologies, because they want to make it seem like, I'll never do this again. This is the worst thing ever. Like, I'd rather have seen him do something like, I'm going to be working with this group, or like volunteering with this, this, or I'm going to be taking these classes, just showing something he's actually kind of try to learn a little bit rather than like anyone can write a blanket statement and say they're sorry they did the worst thing ever when it's like well okay but show us yeah maybe learn more about what you did yeah back to bikes big news this week we've got the olympics going on obviously an action pack week of racing in tokyo the gold medals went to tom pidcock and yolanda neff with matthias flukiger and cena frey collecting silvers with david serrano and linda indergrand getting bronze so the men's race is supposed to be a showdown, the, the road racers, but Tom Pidcock was able to ride clear after Vanderpool crashed off the rock drop. Lots of people probably seen that crash by now. It's kind of a Friday fail style moment. Just goes off the end, doesn't pull up at all, eats shit. Um, he says he doesn't know, didn't know that a training ramp was going to be removed, and his team says they told him. So, What do you guys think? I mean, either way, it's pretty shitty. He left the tour early to prepare for that. He's obviously been thinking about the Olympics for a long time, focusing on them. Um I will say that that's definitely not the way anybody, not the way I'd want to see anybody's Olympic go. Nino, Nino beat him though. Nino came fourth, almost got um, fourth. Uh, Do you get a medal for fourth, Levy, in the Olympics? Oh shit! Uh, yeah, I don't check. I, don't I guess think not. They've got, hey, yeah. Kaz, he's uh-huh. tapering for the next Olympics four years from now. Oh uh, yes, maybe tapering for retirement, huh? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I hope yeah, not. I know. Yeah. Did you guys <laughs> Sorry, watch the race? Uh, just the highlights. Yeah, same. Yeah. yeah. That crash looked bad, though. Yeah, I know. It almost just looks like he kind of forgot to pull up. Like, if I don't think it was a, like, it was just a weird moment. But it's also strange that everybody else, like, if you saw people going off a drop in front of you and then you just did something totally different, it's kind of a weird thing. But yeah. Um, yeah. I will also say Pidcock obviously dominated. He was probably going to win anyway. SR Sun Tour, he had an SR Sun Tour suspension on his bike, gold medal for SR yeah. Sun Tour. Yeah. You can win a gold medal on Sun Tour. Here's a, here's a podcast topic. What's the most 
un like weirdly rabid product fan base. Oh, of, like, it's DVO. Oh. It's DVO. Is it DVO or Manatee? Maxis. Mm, Please. Some have Ma- reasons. Yeah. <laughs> some, are, yeah some, but, are, some make sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that just could be a topic. We can talk about this another this is a good Let's one. keep moving on with the news. <laughs> We're going to get off topic here. <laughs> um, yeah, let's see. In the women's race, it's great to see Yolanda Neff back at the top after a tough couple of years. She's definitely had some pretty big injuries. Um, she sent also, the drop. She did send the drop. And then Switzerland took all three medals. That's pretty impressive, too. They've got to be proud as a country. Uh, we also saw a geared BMX bike in the Olympics for the first time. I don't think the BMX, as of this recording, BMX hasn't happened yet, I believe. But... Um, Juan Van Gent, he's the current world champion. He's got a Z group set, so he's running two speeds on his BMX bike. He even built basically a replica of the drop-in ramp in his backyard so he can practice because the drop-in ramp's a little longer than you would normally have on a BMX track, so he's hoping that he can get that shift off, go faster than everybody else, and get the whole shot. Okay, so it's a, it's a whole shot technique. Mm-hmm. Cool. Did you see That's... how he mounted his shifter so he could yeah. get it? Yeah. Yeah, it's like upside down. Rotate it up. Yeah. Yeah. There are no rules against it. That was one thing a lot of people questioned. And we've seen it in the past, not in the Olympics, but other people have tried different little geared setups. Um, but yeah, we'll see if this works. If he gets a gold, I'm sure we'd see more. And if not, who knows? And also because the course is a little different, so it's kind of, might just be a one-off kind of thing. But it's interesting, mountain bike stuff happening in the BMX world. Before we finish with the Olympics, I do want to say that course was a great course. So nice to see that. Yeah, and the XC course was a really cool course. Yeah, it's weird because it just looked like a city park, but it actually turned to like pretty cool riding and had rocks yeah. and drops and things. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Moving on from not cross country riding, we've got the Hardline event. It's back after a year's hiatus. Dan Atherton made the course bigger than ever with some wild new features. Um, definitely some people crashed out, but in the end, it was Bernard Kerr who took his third Hardline title ahead of Laurie Greenland and Kate Edwards. And did you guys watch any of that? Yeah, I I watched the winning run, the POV winning run. Mm-hmm. It looked so smooth. I don't understand. <laughs> it's crazy. The fact that they race it too. Like I I real I was watching the I watched the whole thing pretty much or most of it and then I calculated that I could ride 30 seconds of that course before I encountered an obstacle that there's no way I could do. And that's basically yeah. the first jump. So yeah. like I could ride down a couple <laughs> like rock rolls and then yeah. after less than 30 seconds I'd be like, oh, I'm done." And it just gets bigger and bigger and and then you have to race it. Like just clearing all those jumps and not dying is impressive. And then I wonder what their approach is like when they race it. Like obviously at a World Cup race, they're at they're going over a hundred percent. But at the hard line, are they like is it World Cup effort between the giant step downs and jumps and really sketchy sections, and then they're just reining it in for that stuff? They're raining like scrubbing it in. and scrubbing was the, the like the tactic like Bernard Kerr because the jumps are so big and like floaty if you can scrub and stay as low as possible you can gain a little time and that seemed like what he did pretty well and then Kaz, not crashing in the gnarly rock thing. Kaz, can you imagine the mindset where you're you're not scared about just clearing it? You're like, oh, I need to save a quarter second over this eighty foot gap. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna scrub it and land perfectly right on the knuckle a little bit to control my speed, and then I'm gonna. I'm going to grab my brakes in the air to control the uh, pitch of my bike. Oh, yeah, yeah. They kept saying that those guys are doing that. I want to know if that's real. I used to do that. Yeah, Yeah, it's real. I used to do that. I used to grab my rear brake to drop my front end down. That just makes me crash. Well, maybe My front end just goes... Yeah, maybe I'll... I'll give you a lesson later, Kaz. I'm not going to practice that. Either way, Hardline went off. It was wild. There's actually tons of good coverage, lots of good videos that really illustrate the perspective. So if you missed that, definitely check it out. Why do you guys think Bernard Kerr has won three of them? Like, is he, what's going on? Uh, there's other World Cup racers there. Yeah. 
I'm not sure. It kind of just fits his style. It's like the event that works for him because mm-hmm. it is to have like he's good at the big jumps and they're bigger jumps than you would find in any World Cup course. Way bigger. Way uh, bigger. It's we're so desensitized to it. Um, it, they're so big. Having been there two years ago, it's not just the, obviously the jumps are huge, but some of the janky stuff that you don't see on camera is it's proper horrible, like yeah. just horrible. And um, I think what's interesting is not why does Bernard Kerr always win hardline, but why doesn't he win World Cups? <laughs> why yes. doesn't it go the well, other way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we have a question, basically exactly that, coming up here in a few minutes. So we'll get to that. Yeah, moving on, keeping the UK theme going. We've got a new bike from Starline. We've seen it before, but it's the Starline Spur. Um, so it's British manufacturer. They've got a gearbox, enduro bike. It's steel. So you'd think this would kind of be the, the winning, would win the comment section. It's got everything you want. Um, yeah, 170 millimeters of travel, single pivot, 29 inch wheels, and it has an Effigier gearbox. So it has all the nice. things you think you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not saying you do want this, but in a lot of people's minds, this is the ultimate. Yeah. So um, it is cool that the Effigier gearbox allows you to use a trigger shifter, mm-hmm. but you know, a gearbox, again, you can't shift under load. There are issues with that. Henry, are you yes. pro gearbox because you're from England? This is how long have we got? <laughs> okay, so it's clearly better but not not. in any of the itinerations that have so far been produced so it's currently not better it's currently worse but it will be better one day Mm. the glass ceiling (laughs) being shit once once we once Once stop being shit it's gonna be amazing that glass ceiling is just bulletproof glass like (laughs) it's just like (laughs) gearboxes are garbage currently and and if we had derailleur drivetrain that worked like a gearbox drivetrain we'd complain about them bitterly you know that's just big cassette money man big cassette money yeah Yeah, yeah. who's backhanding you all these fucking water to cash to brown paper hundreds of dollars to be made in the bike industry (laughs) we are going to do a gearbox podcast at some point i've tried to get a few people on who are pro gearbox with who have companies that either sell gearboxes or bikes that come with gearboxes and nobody really wants to come on and talk about gearboxes with me i wonder why Hmm. gearboxes the problem is that gearboxes are like they're like that relationship that would be perfect if it worked but it doesn't work because you both resent each other thoroughly or whatever (laughs) story of my life (laughs) so it's like it'd be so good if it was perfect well yeah of course it'd be good if it was perfect but it's not is it yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but it so, would be perfect can i just say for the record it would be better it, than anything that we, we've got right now if it worked <laughs> you're just gonna yeah you're you're in that relationship hoping it's gonna change one day yeah totally oh i hope they stop cheating on me then it will be perfect <laughs> like, yeah. it's, like, well, it's done <laughs> hey kaz this thing does use a trigger shifter though right it does yeah and i think you can use even a regular like sram trigger shifter i think Gear makes their own but from what i could find out they also have a really hard website to find so guys if you want to sell gearboxes maybe make it so there's a website where they're for sale i just all i want to say is i always shit on gearbox bikes but i will say that anybody can go out and buy a bike with a derailleur on it if you could find one right now but it is pretty cool that there's different stuff out there to choose from if you do want a gearbox and it suits your needs you can you can pick it it's an option even if it doesn't work as well it's pretty neat that it's an option (laughs) I had this to put that in there. Leave you with his backhanded, <laughs> yeah. backhanded sensible, sensibleness. Hey, are we going to, is, is, has anybody mentioned the spur, two bikes being called a spur? Like this one was first, wasn't it? I think yeah. so. It seems like yeah. the first one was 2019 and then the spur came out 2020. So yeah. So there are two different spurs out there. One is light little down country thing. One is heavy, big smash everything bike. Um, 
Can we have I Game don't... of Spur with me and Levy? Me with the travel, the gearbox, oh, and then Levy with his... Oh, that'd be good. Spur versus super Spurs. thin Spurs. tyres, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. lightweight bike. And then we'll, we'll go ride some of his stuff and we'll go ride some of my stuff. Yeah. And then I would smash you. We can talk about all the excellent things that Levy shot on over. Maybe we should... That's a good... And maybe we'll great. hit up Joe and see... Yeah. We'll hit up Joe and see if he wants to send us a Spur for Spur versus Spur. This could be pretty good. Every time that you have to ease up to shift, Henry, I'll just get accelerate away from you. And then you'll flat with your little tires and he'll just roll over you with the <laughs> yeah. <knee> roller. Just <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Move on to the Olin's RXF 38 review. So another big fork with 38 millimeter stanchions. That's definitely the theme of the last year or so. Um, we saw the RXF 38 before. It was previously just on e-bikes and this is version 2.0 technically. They say they kind of designed it from the ground up where the other one was, um, let's see, it was, the other one was just more, Designed from the ground up seems silly. It wasn't designed. Is it, cha- from the ground is it like the other one was chassis and this is in? in yeah, so this has everything bits? that they yeah. wanted it to do. Basically, the other one was more not cobbled together, but sort of for the e-bikes. But this one is designed for e-bikes or enduro. Just anyone that wants a bigger, burlier fork. Um, Seb's got a full review up, and basically his takeaway was that he says it's sensitive and smooth once into the travel. Plenty of adjustability and a well-considered range of damping settings. It's got a three-chamber air spring that makes tuning progression quick and easy. And offers good support under braking while still be able to use its travel effectively on bigger hits. But he wasn't totally happy with the negative spring volume. He thought they should turn it up a few notches because this fork was firmer off the top, uh, particularly when compared to the Fox 38. So there wasn't quite as much traction, comfort, or predictability. I do want to thank Seb for pointing out the differences. I think all too often we see reviews of these high-end products and like you could basically sum it up by saying, oh, it works really well. It's never going to hold anybody back. But what I want to know is how the damn thing compares to a Zeb or a 38. And that's exactly what Seb has done. So it's interesting to hear that at the high end, there are some differences. Well, at the low end too, obviously there is, but even at the highest end, there are some big performance differences between these fancy forks. Yep. Yeah. And who knows, somebody might like that firmer off the top feel of this one, but um, yeah, it's good to know kind of what you're getting. If you're going to drop a thousand dollars or whatever. This week's Pink Bike Podcast is presented by SQ Lab. SQ Lab specializes in the three contact points of the bike, saddle, grips, and pedals. A bicycle saddle must not only perfectly fit both male and female anatomies, but also correctly spread the body weight. SQ Lab became the first saddle manufacturer to introduce a system to measure the distance between the sit bones and to calculate the correct saddle width. All SQ Lab saddle models are available in up to five different widths for all riding styles. Find out more at sq-lab.com. That's sq-lab.com. All right. And that brings us to our questions. Kaz, we got a whole bunch of questions today. The first one is about upside down forks. I know you've been on a few over the past year or two. So this is from NS Curb. This was posted under the last podcast. So everybody, if you want your questions asked and answered, you got to post them under the podcast. That's really the only thing I'm clicking on. So put them there if you want me to see them. NS Curb says... Opinion-based question, will we ever see upside-down single-crown forks become a more common option? Casimir? I don't think so. I mean, they they always come, they look cool, and you see them, especially more smaller manufacturers, kind of almost trying to stand out. But in the trail bike and enduro bike world, I just don't think that you can overcome the weight penalty that typically incurs with them and the whole torsional rigidity thing. I don't. It's hard to foresee them... Um, yeah, producing a better one than a telescoping fork, but who knows? What happened with the RS1? I always thought they looked so badass. They're heavy. They're just heavy. Yeah. Hmm. They were cool, and I, yeah, I, I thought they looked great too. And they, 
they weren't like performance wise they were decent they weren't like head and shoulders above other things but you no, could it was put good, a, though. i rode one for over a year it had a little like that mini charger damper thing in it back then and it wasn't the stiffest thing around it was stiff enough for me yeah mm-hmm. um especially in a short travel sort of setup like that but yeah it was heavier and we compare numbers so there you go <laughs> I like. I also want to say that it's not always helpful to be loyal to the idea of what a bicycle is today. So I do like seeing people try their no, but, leapfrog tech. Oh no, even no, I, I agree. But I mean, if you got to be, I just mean the sense that these things, fifteen kilograms is mm-hmm. enough. That's all I mean. Yeah. Um, and that that is that's you got to be pragmatic. And so sometimes the perfect unicorn design just isn't going to fit into that to that weight. Okay, our next question is from. S.J.L. Cinemas. I think that's your name. Uh, Brian, this is a question for you. He wants to know what happened to the VOD and the POD on the homepage. Are they coming back? Gone for good? Did he miss an article? He says it's quite the longstanding feature for PB to remove without a word about it. So what's the deal? It's uh, it's gone for now. Both of them are gone for now. Um, I'm trying to... I, f- I have some ideas on bringing them back. They just They got less and less um popular over the years and you know things have changed it used to be the reason to visit pink bike in the morning and um but no i i'm sad to see them go erratic remove them what was it like two months ago Thanks. um and uh yeah he he gave a tribute with the first the first photo and video and and a suite as the last ones and then um then he pulled them but um yeah i have an idea for how to bring them back but i'll keep quiet until we do it all right, our next question is from Yersis. That's probably how you pronounce it. Kaz, he says, so Bernard Kerr wins his third Red Bull hardline, which he'd call pretty dominant. He'd also call hardline the most difficult timed mountain bike event in the world. And he wants to know if guys like Kerr and Fairclaw are dominant in that sort of stuff, how come they're not as dominant at actual world cup racing like he kind of makes a good point you know like from my perspective if somebody could be good at hardline why wouldn't somebody be good at world cup like good enough to win a world cup downhill race first off um so that's the first part of the question so what do you think about that i mean it's not as if bernard kerr and brendan faircloth do poorly on the world cup circuit yes. so you know they've proven themselves i think doesn't Kerr have a fifth at world champs once so he's obviously a super talented rider but i think for this event it kind of suits those guys maybe a little more because they're very comfortable with the huge jumps you know like we're talking about these jumps are a lot bigger than your um, typical world cup jumps so that's going to help you just feel comfortable with that level of this course and it's kind of a yeah this course is its own its own beast so um yeah i mean bernard kerr and brendan fairclough do have the talent to win a world cup but there's a lot more that goes into it than just being able to hit big jumps i'd say i'm i don't know maybe i'm wrong on this but i believe a lot of the racers at hardline are racing to hold it together like yes it's a timed event but a lot of people aren't necessarily giving it a hundred percent because they've got a race career and they're they're they want to line up at a world cup very soon i honestly feel that if the whole world cup like everybody like all the men's pro pro world cup racers could could get through hardline i think and i think if the whole field went and gave hardline 100 percent, i'm not sure that bernard or brendan would do as well as they do yeah i would agree with that 
Um, so the next part of his question, it's about the course. He says, should the UCI World Cup move in that direction where for a lot of guys, it's just a challenge to get down this absolutely wild course? Or does the super precise detail of hunting for tenths of a second over a plethora of line choices make for better racing? So basically, Uris wants to know, should the UCI go that direction and have courses that hard? Which, Uris, I don't think that's realistic because other people have to race on the course as well, not just the World Cup men, which are, I think, undeniably the most skilled mountain bikers in the world. You also have a whole bunch of juniors. Um, you have women racing it as well, too. And I mean, the course is fucking rowdy. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't realize how hard a normal World Cup downhill yeah. track is currently. Like if you've never been to a World Cup course, and you've only watched it on TV or on the Internet or whatever. It looks doable. And then you go look at it and it's it's insane how steep and technical some of these sections are. So in my mind, uh, you know, I'm not speaking for any of the riders. They're obviously at a different level. But the World Cup courses these days look pretty good to me. One weekend we can have the commentary being mad at the unsafe nature of a World Cup DH course or feature. And then the next the next time it's it's uh, why aren't all tracks like this? Yeah. <laughs> that all need 70 foot drops. <laughs> All right, we've got two more questions. Uh, this one is from Simothy, 7 Imothy. Another, another name I'm not pronouncing right, I'm sure. He has a bike-related question, Casimir. He says, what's the very least you all could spend on a new rig and be totally happy and content with it? He says he was stoked watching the value bike tests, uh, but noted that you're all pretty dissatisfied with the brakes, some inconsistent fork performance of the value bikes, which I think is fair. So... Kaz, would you get a value bike and pay to upgrade the brakes and poor gear, or would you just save a little longer and spend more money? That's a good question. I mean, a lot of those bikes, you can kind of just bump up to the next price point, and they do offer what we were complaining about. You know, so like the, a lot of times that entry level, the most basic budget bike does leave us wanting a little more, but we don't have to jump up to the $10,000 bracket to get what we're looking for. So for me, like, off the top of my head, if I had to set a price point of what I'd be looking at, like a $3,000 bike, which is still a lot of money, but I'm positive I could find a bike for that much and then be happy just riding it. Three grand or $3,500 US buys you so much bike these days. Yep, I would agree with that as well. And I would go so far as to say there are some really good options for two grand if you're careful with what kind of fork it has and it has the brakes that you like. It has that Vitas, 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 Mythique. I mean, that thing was damn impressive. We talked about it lots. We don't need to keep talking about it, but there are all sorts of other options out there that are pretty good. So for me, I think somewhere around 2K and I could get something that I would ride for a couple seasons and just replace stuff as it broke. What about you, Henry? How many quid would you need to spend on a bike? I don't know, man. I think I would like, as long as I've got reason, reasonable geometry, yeah. good suspension and good brakes, the drivetrain, I don't care like Dior's great it's just going to get me to the top things like I probably wouldn't spend too much on wheels because I think I'm just going to break them eventually they're going to ding the xyz a nice set of hubs is good but I'm not the kind of person that would ever get put too much stock in like a lightweight drivetrain or you know super fancy wheels and stuff like it's just what do you put stock in Henry I put stock in the really sensible things like gearboxes and upside down forks moving on (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> our next question is from Sonoma Kona. This is our last question. Uh, he wants to know, 
what kind of spokes he should use, Kaz. He says he's teaching himself how to build wheels and pondering what kind of spokes he should pick for his next wheel set. Which spoke type offers the best strength to weight ratio? And does the riding discipline affect the selection? He says his riding is somewhere between light trail, mild enduro. Kaz, talk to me about spokes. I mean, I'm a fan of the classic, just, yeah, straight gauge, J-bend, 32 hole, you know, brass nipples. That's kind of a, just a solid, solid build. Yeah. You can go double butted if you want to get a little fancier, spend some more money. Like, it's fine. I don't think you're going to notice any difference on the trail. No, spokes don't break in the middle. So the double butted thing, you save a little bit of weight. But mountain bikers, you shouldn't be giving a shit. Spokes break either at the bend, at the J-bend, or at the threads. It depends on if how the threads have been put in, cut, or rolled. Um, but that's why straight pull spokes, I think, do make a lot of sense. But only if you go bladed straight pull. So you can hold the spoke while you're turning the nipple. Henry's about to disagree with me here. No, I'm not about to. I actually do agree with you. I think straight oh. pull. Straight pull spokes are great. But I do think double butted every, every step of the way. It doesn't make because, a difference. It doesn't. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just... It's just, you know, there's no reason not to. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that it's going to bring a tangible benefit to many people. But what I am saying is, if it's on the table and you're going to buy these spokes once, just get double butted. The, the labor to build a wheel, both your own labor or somebody else's labor, is worth way more than the couple bucks to up, to not. Like, you may as well upgrade yeah, if you're totally. going to do it yourself. Yeah. yeah. But still use brass nipples, right, Henry? Absolutely. Yeah. Unless yeah. you're you building do, some ridiculous light wheel is, set. This is this is what you want to do. You want to use brass nipples, and you also want to use spoke washers if you can get them. Mm-hmm. You want to use 50 percent thread lock mixed with wet lube. That's what I would say. Yeah, and if you do use aluminum nipples, just make sure you drip lube down in there before you try to turn them, like six months down the road. <laughs> that spoke question is the kind of thing that someone who cares about the details would ask about. So I hope Sonoma Kona keeps listening to the next part of our conversation. Bike details that matter should matter, as well as some that probably shouldn't be so high up on some of our priority lists. So we'll get to those, but first, we're going to talk about some important ones. I think it's fair to say that some of these details matter more than others, like I'm picky about all sorts of things, Henry, but one thing I'm not picky about is checking my spoke tension before each and every ride, and I couldn't care less about my bike's paint, getting scratches, things like that. But I also think there are a handful of things that absolutely need to be dialed in before you leave the house with your bike. Casimir, tell me about one of those things for you. What is the one thing for you that needs to be perfect before you go for a bike ride? I mean, before every ride, the one thing I always do is check tire pressure. I know you and I are on the same page and probably stealing one of your points that you would have had because that's just, if there's only one thing I'm going to check, it's that. And I make sure my chain is lubed. (laughs) Those are like the two simplest things. And other than that, everything would have been usually dialed beforehand. But yeah, I don't, um, those make a huge difference in your ride. But checking tire pressure is a really funny thing because, right, there's the right way to do it and there's the wrong way to do it. You do it the right way. World Cups. Uh, yeah, you don't so just squeeze your hand? I just squeeze it a little bit and I'm like, I'm it, good to it, go. No, you don't, Casimir. No, you <laughs> know, don't. He's just trolling. <laughs> right. Same, and this is going to sound really stupid, same altitude, same temperature. Those things are so important used to see people at World Cups, they'd have the mechanic doing their tire pressure in their pits all the time. And then the last run before their finals run, the mechanic would check the tire pressure at the top of the run, like 500 meters higher. And it's, yeah. it doesn't matter what the, the numbers are actually quite 
arbitrary. What matters is consistency. So same pump. It doesn't matter if it's digital, as long as it's the same pump every time. Same pressure, same temperature, you know, same height. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a difference. Yeah. Tire pressure at yeah, altitude and uh, heat. The other, let's see, two or three weeks ago, I was in Colorado. And so we did set the tires at a lower elevation that went up high and it was hot and they got so hard and like it was totally different, but just because it changed during the day. Yeah. yeah. But that's that thing and, that you've got to factor in, I suppose. It's, it's quite hard to be consistent when you're going outside, but just in terms of if you lean your bike outside for 20 minutes in the hot, hot sun and then do it, it's going to be very different than if you have your bike in your garage and you do it. I think it's more true or more important than ever before with modern tires, these high volume tires, if you don't have like a huge downhill casing on them, just a couple of PSI difference can have a huge effect on how your bike rides. It could be too much and all of a sudden you don't have enough traction and you're, you're just not riding as good as you usually are. Or you could hit that rocker route and instead of 22 PSI, you have 18 PSI and you break your $2,000 carbon rim like a dumbass. Like you saved up $7,000 for your mountain bike and you have to have matching grips and pedals. You're absolutely concerned that your dropper needs to have 200 millimeters over 175 millimeters for you to ride all the things, but you're not checking your tire pressure before every ride. You're insane. It's weird how most of my rides, I'm not riding as good as I usually do. <laughs> I don't think that's tire pressure, Brian. <laughs> One more PSI, you'll be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're totally right. But the funny thing is that what always amazes me is people's willingness to spend money without making sure that the current thing they've got is optimized. So like, oh, the new 38 and the Zeb's come out. I never set my 36. I wonder if the 38 that's not set up will be better. <laughs> like, spend half. Because the thing that I find mad is if you think about how expensive it is going from, you know, one tier of fork, say, to the next, and say that's maybe $500, right? And you could spend an afternoon getting that performance, which means you don't have to get the better fork because you don't actually need it. And you're paying yourself $500 for an afternoon just doing the same run and getting everything absolutely dulled. You guys don't get paid like 500 bucks for an afternoon, though? Uh, you pay me 500 bucks per afternoon though right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> don't tell the other guys jesus uh, you get paid uh. <laughs> so henry it sounds like suspension setup might be one of your other details eh yeah i mean i think i know i think experimenting with stuff and understanding that feeling something to be worse is a really valuable piece of information so go out your bike use all the settings find setups that are horrible and find setups that are better you don't need to be able to i think sometimes people watch all this amazing stuff online and they see people talking about oh i need one extra click of high speed yada 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 you don't need to know any of that all you need to know is better and worse and you need to turn dials and find out what feels better and worse for you and that's it i think one of the things people should know besides better or worse is their suspension sag I wish that all all stanchion tubes had some sort of sag, sag gradients on them of some sort, but for patent reasons, I guess they can't. But I see people at the trailhead and they sit on their bikes and like, dudes, the forks, the fork is almost bottomed. <laughs> you know, like you have this new bike, it has this new geometry that is going to help you more than anything. But your bottom bracket is an inch too close to the ground and you're going to pedal strike at Scorpion so hard right away. I don't know, like, if you get the sag right, at least, it preserves the geometry of your bike. You've got a place to start. Maybe your settings are wrong, but you're not going to be blown through your travel and your head angle is not going to 90 degrees every every two seconds. But you should bottom out 15 times a run though, right? I thought it was 17. 
Oh, is it 70? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let some PSIs out. Kaz, Leave how often you? are you checking SAG before, before you go for a ride? Not typically before I go for a ride. Like I do the initial setup with the bike and that takes a couple of days usually, a few, a few rides before I feel like it's set. And then yeah. kind of a set and forget rider after that. Um, and then like you're, you shouldn't be losing pressure that quickly. Like typically I'm on a review bike, so I have them for a couple of months and send them back. So yeah, I don't setting uh, checking sag isn't something I do every ride, but every once in a while, or if the bike starts feeling strange, but um, unprofessional, not really. I mean, <laughs> you shouldn't be losing air like that. <laughs> well, hold on though. There, I mean, there are definitely reasons why your shock might be losing air. It's, it's a ton of pressure in there. And if your valve core has got like a, being a little picky or it's got something in it, maybe they come loose or maybe these people haven't serviced their shock in, in four years. I will say I, I check sag every ride or before I go on every ride, but only because my current personal bike has sag gradients on both the shock and the fork. So it's super easy for how, me to do. How do you set, how do you check sag on a gravel bike? my gravel bike it does have a little boinger on the back just so you know oh wow uh, okay well i thought gravel biking was a bit lame but thank you for correcting me for yeah, boing. yeah. Boingers. <laughs> so yeah I, i'm not i don't obsess over sag once i have the stuff set up i'll check it if it started started feeling soft or whatever i would check again but your shock shouldn't be losing air like that so are you guys are you guys on personal bike, obviously on test bikes you have notes and ongoing stuff. But on personal bikes, do you have your little notebook where you keep all your all your sag data and clicks from closed and all the stuff? I go to the local art supply center, and if you get a silver like magic mark, silver magic marker, and you can just write next to the valve and underneath your cap what PSI you've got in there, just so you know, and then you never forget it because it's always there. That's I have a, a nice whiteboard that I write stuff on. I just have it in my phone, but it just says like my pressures. So I don't have to mess with it. Brian, what about you? You going for a bike ride? What are you checking before you head out? Not tire pressure or suspension sag. Is there anything else? No, I don't. I'm I'm in a lucky position. I don't have to ride different bikes all the time like these guys. So my bike yeah. is set up and dialed ish. And I what I try and do is I try and make sure that it's ready to go after each ride i kind of force myself to do that because it's always one of the, you know i've got a kid and i sometimes have short windows to get out if my bike's not ready to go i might not get out the door i imagine before riding your hardtail you just confirm that you haven't got any slip discs yet then you go ride the north shore and then you can't <laughs> when you come home yes exactly <laughs> what are you what are you picky about with your setup then brian i know some people they're they're checking their lever angle their brake lever angle with a digital angle finder or are you are you doing anything like that no i just leave them a tiny bit loose in case of crash but then just a little too loose so that at some point they move during the ride and i'm like oh shit yeah um yep. yeah you're not I'm, set up for brakes the same way yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm a little bit picky there's some things i really like that don't make a lot of sense i really like dropper posts being flushed with the top of your seat tube not for any performance Why? reason yuck yeah. it just looks so good no it makes me uncomfortable you have no you can't lower it ever on all the, the fly. you know all the new droppers have yeah on the fly why would i need to i have a if i'm riding if i'm riding and i'm like oh my seat's a little bit too high at full extension and i could drop it but if it's flush with the seat then i'm gonna get uncomfortable i can't drop it and it'll give me anxiety i, I need I at least like 10 millimeters my bike is set up though like i use the same shoes on the same pedals on the same bike with the same cranks and the same saddle all the time like i'm not my saddle height is set correctly and i set it, it by i set it with the like on that hardtail, it's the Vecnum uh, 
Nevo dropper, which is 213, and you can go down by four millimeter increments or two millimeter increments to set it up. And um, so it, I don't have I don't have full 213. I've got like 208 or something or 206 your, mil. So your dropper drop. post has more travel than my entire bike. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I know. I know. I Is need that a detail, though, that you're stuck on, Brian? Like, do you no. want maximum amount of drop? Is that no, but I do think it, I do like having, I do think that more drop is better than less drop when, when the two options are there. Um, I don't, I don't think I would discount a bike because I can only fit a 170 dropper in there, but I do like having more. Um, I think as a rule of thumb, a bike's dropper should be longer than the travel. That's absolute. I agree with that. Yeah. That's not a bad way to put it. It kind of makes sense. Levy, do you have a dropper on your gravel bike? No, I'm not putting one on because I don't want to crash. As soon as I put mm-hmm. a dropper on, yeah. I'll start riding things that I shouldn't be riding on a gravel bike and I'll blow up. So this way, mm-hmm. the seat is up in my ass and I know just not to ride down that. Henry, I'm looking at your notes here. And one of the things that you're picky about are brake pads, which that's a topic that we actually talk about fairly often in reviews and here on the podcast. And we're constantly shitting on brakes that come with organic pads, or maybe I should just say not the correct pads and rotor for how the bike is supposed to be used. So what is your, what's your issue with brake pads? Fill me in here. Well, I think that, you know, people are very happy to spend more money on a bigger braking system when actually they have the same pad compound that is in the cheap brakes all the way through to the really expensive ones, which doesn't really make any sense to me. You think if you're spending three times as much on the brake, you might get a more more expensive brake pad. And also we're getting bigger calipers but then, like you said, having, you know, maybe pads that don't work particularly well or on small rotors, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I think there are so many really, I mean, aftermarket pads go one or two ways. You can get some stuff which will drastically improve the performance of your brakes. Um, and you can also get some stuff which I don't understand people saying, oh my God, I've got these new, I don't know, XTR or Code RSE brakes. And I've also got these pads which only cost $6. And I'm just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? Like, big rotors, I'm not necessarily... I think some companies do the resin thing really well. I think some companies do the sintered thing really well. I'm not necessarily absolute on that. I think that it, it depends on the company. But I think big rotors make such a massive difference. And they make far bigger difference than having, for me at least, than having a slightly bigger caliper. Yeah, and with having me on the, on the brake thing, I'm pretty picky about bikes that come and just basically metallic pads on almost all the bikes, especially in the winter time around here when it's super wet. Summertime, it doesn't matter as much uh, to me, but once it's wet, resin pads just don't work well at all. You grab brake and you just keep going. So um, yeah, luckily we're seeing more bikes come with metallic pads, I think at the higher end, but yeah, I'm definitely, that's the way I go. I, there are advantages to, to each pad compound. And it's really interesting. You can tell a lot about where somebody lives, I think by their preference of metallic versus organic. Um, but I think the real issue, the real thing that we have a problem with isn't metallic versus resin pads. It's when people save a tiny amount on the bill of materials by specking stamped rotors, like softer stamped rotors that can't handle metallic pads. They don't give you the option. That sucks. Cause then you have to, you just bought a bike and you have to change your rotors and your pads. Yeah. Yeah. And I like powerful brakes too, I'd say on all my bikes. So even you know levy likes to tease me about asking for four piston brakes and everything but it's pretty cool that we're finally getting a point where that's excuse me starting to show up you know like i've got that new scott spark and that's got four piston xtr brakes on it i think which is cool on a bike that's like 25 pounds or something silly um 
and it works great. Like I don't ever feel like, oh, I have too much braking power. Like, it's too easy to slow down. You know, I think that's that's pretty cool. He does have me there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, I think the next thing for me is we're starting to see more rotors just come, you know, bigger widths, which makes total sense. Like make it two mil, make it, you know, and I'd love to see where this goes. It's just basically going to resist the buildup of heat so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I, I'm a big believer in. Just let's get larger rotor clearance and then we can have thicker rotors. Yep. And a lot of times people, your brakes already have clearance for wider rotors. If you just push the pistons out a little bit, like I ran those TRP rotors on some code brakes. I think they were 2.2 mil, um, 2.2 thickness and they worked fine with the, the code brakes and they're good. I like those. I, I like the thicker rotors as well. So I'd assume we'll see some more coming out. Since since we're talking about brakes, one of my details that I'm pretty anal about is brake setup, specifically just like the lever uh, resting point and where the bite point is. I need those to match left to right and be exactly where I want them to be. So a lot of times I find myself in the shop like advancing the pistons a little bit to get, get that bite point where I want it. Um, and that's something that I'm willing, as much as I moan about mountain bike brakes being incredibly unreliable to the point where it's crazy. I don't understand how they can be so inconsistent for everybody. I also am willing to pay extra money for an adjustable bite point, tool-free adjustable bite point. What about you guys? Yeah, given the option, I obviously, I do prefer that. Like if I'm going for code breaks, the code R versus code RSC, I would I'd pay the extra money for the RSC just to have the ability to adjust that. Because um, yeah, same thing, pretty picky about how they have to feel even, hit at the same point. For my hands, because someone else might go out and be like, "These are uneven," but it doesn't matter. They're even for my hands, so yeah, that's. Uh... I have I have little new little brakes on the on the uh, XC bike, and they don't have tool free adjust. And I was like, "Oh, this is going to be annoying," but they don't move. They haven't changed. <laughs> I think one of the things that I'm really picky on is, um, and this sounds really silly, but I think it's people that spend. I mean, everyone, it's so easy to do spend. Get your handlebars and make sure all the decals are, are perfectly lined up within the stem. But the thing you need to do before you get any set of handlebars is measure the bar, make sure the decals in the center, because often they're not. They just <laughs> yes. slap them on, and then someone yeah. spends, you know, we all do it so easy to do. Oh, I need to just move it half a mil this way, half a mil that way. And it's like, it's not even in the center. It's just so funny. Yeah. Hey, we should I also. Can hear, I can hear everybody like running out to their garage right now just to double check. Yeah. <laughs> get, get the tape measure out, folks. <laughs> yeah, that is a pet peeve when handlebars have no markings on them, though, like when they're oh. absolutely nothing. And the, especially around the stem area, it's like, just toss some hash marks on there. So I have something to refer to because it's way more annoying without them. Do you guys make witness marks, Kaz? Like if you're moving controls around, do you have to make witness marks just so you can put your stuff back exactly where you had it? I probably should. That'd be a good idea, but just I don't. Just take a scribe. <laughs> just scribe yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, just like the, I take a hacksaw, just like sl- just saw a little bit, just through the clear coat. It's just fine. a little groove, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't typically, but I can, you know, when I am setting things up, I do measure like the distance of the brake lever to the the grip and stuff yeah yeah that's where you and your permanent markers can come in again because like the little grid box on your say code rsc brakes just color it in a black permanent marker you can't see it until you're looking for it you know i use a whiteout felt marker just a little i put a little dot where the clamps are and just so i know yeah that's the angle yeah one other thing we should talk about another detail that some of us think matters but if i were to listen to the comments it shouldn't matter and that's bike weight oh man Brian, if we it's, read the comments, 
you get so many people like say we review a heavy bike a heavyish bike there's always a lot of comments saying oh who cares you know there's more important things or vice versa on a light bike and basically i mean if i were to believe the masses i shouldn't care about weight at all but what do you what do you think man it it makes a huge difference i'm i have a one very heavy bike and one fairly light bike the weight difference between my two bikes is an entire danger home build even still the logic like the comment logic of my total system weight of myself fat guy with a bike under me the difference between those two is not it's not a huge amount difference that i'm carrying up the hill but holy shit do you notice it yeah yeah i think yeah one of the arguments is you know you can obviously go just as fast on a heavy bike as a light bike but the effort especially on a long day Mm -hmm. like over the weekend i did a pretty long ride and i thought my buddy was going to bring his bigger bike because we're going to ride some rowdier trails so i brought my bigger bike then when he rolled out on his lighter bike i was kind of like oh it's going to be like nine hours and i brought my 37 pound thing okay well here we go so, did it have an idler pulley cast <laughs> no this bike had no idler this is just the the common saw still but i was like you know a downhill tire on it and stuff it's like oh all right it's gonna be a long day but those kind of things even if it's just mount hill i'm sure there's studies that show whatever but just knowing that you've got a lighter bike it is easier to ride longer distances for sure yeah and it's it's also the bike is just more fun to ride when i get on a bike that weighs 26 pounds versus a bike that weighs 36 pounds obviously first off those bikes are made for different things there's no doubt about that but the lighter bike is just more fun to ride on the trail it's easier to throw around and bump off things and just be more sort of interactive with the terrain i would argue as well do you agree that good bikes ride light though yep they can so like a heavy bike that rides well will ride lighter than a lighter bike that rides really poorly. <laughs> when you want to when you want to decode Levy's reviews, just the word energetic. That's what that means. Everybody take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good word. It describes, it is a good, you know. It does. I know exactly what feels. you're talking about when you say it. Yeah. yeah. That's it. That's I feel like that's one of my one of the qualities that I have highest on my priority list when I'm considering a bike, I want to be rewarded for any effort that I put into it. And weight is part of that picture, but it's definitely not the biggest part of that picture, but it's a factor. I, I think one thing that why people don't understand the weight criticism as much is that they're not having to make a choice, right? They, it, your 36 pound trail bike is awesome compared to no bike and your 36 pound trail bike rides a lot better with good tires rather than shit tires so when that's the decision to add you know a quarter pound of weight with slightly better tires that's the right decision to make but if you your choice is between two bikes that have both have good tires and one's a pound lighter or three pounds lighter five pounds lighter yeah it's a different choice for us Okay, so how much should a trail bike weigh? A trail bike, so I think 130, 140 more travel. 25 pounds. 28 pounds. So under 30? Under 30, yeah. Oh, trail bike? hell yes. But 29er? <laughs> yeah. Under 30? It's 2022 so, Guys, it's the future. It depends. We should have... Yeah, no, but, but we've gone away from that. It used to be I know, I want to go back. I, I know I want to go back too, but yeah. I can't do it. I can't get my bike under 30 pounds. Well, I know, <laughs> Henry, <it's like> <laughs> that's because you live in Squamish now. Like, it, it depends on where we live. If, we live in Squamish, and I mean, if I was building up a 130-ish, 140-ish, do-all-the-things bike that I wanted to be reliable and all that kind of stuff, I mean, I want that 
generally speaking. <laughs> it's going to weigh probably over 30 pounds. I'm going to have an insert. It's going to have at least a double down rear tire, possibly a double down front tire. It's going to be a heavy bike. It's the last time you ran double down tires. I don't like double down tires. But I also flat all the time. Not all the time, yeah, but I also right. flat sometimes, <laughs> you know? So I'm obviously okay with that. Um, Levy, here's a good question then. Yeah. So we've got a bike for Squamish, like you said. Yeah. It weighs, say, 15 kilos. What's a kilo? I don't know what a pound is. <laughs> it's that's about, like, four, I think 14 kilos is about 30 pounds. Okay, so I was going like, to say, that's like 31, 30, 32 30, pounds. Yeah. Yeah. So 32. at which point would you just say that we've got the weight, it's got, this, it's got the lyrics on, it's got the super deluxe, travel doesn't weigh anything once you've got the chassis, what point are you like, well, may as well be 160 more travel. You know, like if, if we're going down that way and it's got all the, it's got all the ingredients, the only difference is a, an air spring or a, 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 um, a stroke reducer in the foot, in the shock. Why not just make it yeah. 20 mil more travel? Oh, that's, that's a silly question, Henry, because that entirely changes question. the bike's character. Yeah. It entirely changes the bike's character. So do you ride bikes? So you'd rather have something shorter travel that is just basically running less sag essentially along the... St- I want to run something... Yeah, you're asking the wrong question, dog. I want to run something shorter travel, period. Yeah, what I'm saying is once, once, you're, in, once you're in there and you've, you've got the weight and you've got the lyrics and you've got the et cetera, or the Fox 36. Yeah, yeah. Why wouldn't you just bump it up to 160? Because I don't want to ride a 160 bike. You I want, want to ride a 120 bike or whatever, shorter travel bike. Probably Are you the kind of person that sleeps? People. Do you like sleep on the floorboards? Oh, it just feels more... Oh. <laughs> Feels so much more energetic down here. Jesus Christ. I mean, have you seen his car? I mean, that mini. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess I just, mountain biking to me isn't about having the bike that makes all the things the easiest. It just, it isn't, that's not what I boil my bike choice down to. I don't want the best bike that's going to give me the best chance of riding that super gnarly downhill as fast as somebody else. You know, that's not the bottom line. I want a bike that's more fun to ride. And I paid the price for that sometimes. That's why he's a fat biker. Yeah, yeah, down country excuse. Yeah, because an excuse. Oh, it's the bike. (laughs) I have to go around this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Does that make sense, Henry? It does. I mean, I think you're fundamentally wrong, but it does make sense. (laughs) Yeah, but like you you can't deny it. Like a 120 bike on the trail, 120 bike does feel different than a 160 bike. No, if, if it does feel different, but I think. For me, I just think that if weight does matter, which is what we're talking about, then at what yeah. point does it become like, well, the travel doesn't weigh like the I, the travel doesn't weigh anything. The, so they're not together. Weight and travel doesn't I, I know have they're to be together. together now. No, no, no. I know they're not together. But travel obviously is it relates to efficiency, right? Both going up and going down, you know? And it, it does relate to liveliness. But I think a lot of people will conflate that. Energy. I think a lot of people energy. Will, energy, man. Jesus, doing too much yoga, mate. <laughs> so, okay, I, one thing I think where we I all do... I was, about, I was about to make my point, Brian. Oh, Jesus. I know, but I'm Don't trying to... Don't sell me short. Don't trying sell to, me short. I'm trying to dig you out of this hole. <laughs> no, but that's what I'm talking about. People that say that weight really matters or weight doesn't matter in the comments, probably, that's probably part of the disconnect. You know? Travel. They don't realise you might want to ride a heavy bike that's also short of travel for the feeling, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I see where you're going with there. I think one of the things a lot of us can agree on is that some of these short travel bikes lose some some of what makes them special when you throw the Pacific Northwest starter pack on them, um, and all of a sudden that you have a 130. <laughs> That's amazing. Tra- you know the 130 mil bike that is 
33 pounds all of a sudden. It's got yeah, your... but that's what I want. The my my ideal is to have these bikes with the Pacific Northwest starter pack on them weigh in at less than 30 pounds. Yeah, less than 30 pounds. Agreed. Yeah. So like that, like we'll go back to the Scott Sparks since I've been riding that a bunch. The bike shows up. It's their like down country build of it, but then it has like super light casing tires, it's got narrowish handlebars. It's got all this stuff. But in my mind, I'm like, why don't they make a Pacific Northwest version? Kind of like Rocky used to make those BC edition ones. I like that tactic of having one that mm-hmm. has like all of the stuff. Um, that's not really weight related, but sometimes I do like to see yeah. bikes that are perfectly suited to what I want. No, I think that, that that's fair. I just think that sometimes you do lose the character of what the bike was intended for if you go too far down that road especially if the geometry doesn't deserve it people just you know they read that they need double down casing tires or yeah. whatever and start no, yeah i agree that. on the bike for sure like i've got that outside that transition spur and like i wouldn't put downhill tires on that bike mm-hmm. like, and i even Correct. i had it with a 140 fork for a little bit just because i didn't have the oh. air spring yet and it doesn't make it it's so it'd be 140 120 which a lot of people are like i want to do that it's like no you don't like it rides so much better at 120, 120. So what's, there what's are, the head angle with a 140 fork on a spur, Kaz? Uh, like 65, I think. So not great. Yeah. I thought it'd be slacker. Maybe it's 60. I think it's 65. Either way, it didn't feel as good. So yeah, there's there's points where you start turning your bike into something it wasn't made to be and it doesn't yeah. work as well. Okay. Since we're talking about weight, maybe we should talk about some of the details that we don't think matter as much. Uh, but some people get really, really into, I'm going to give one of my favorite examples to start off with, and I'm probably going to make a whole bunch of people mad, which I'm okay with. So whether or not a frame uses a press fit or threaded bottom bracket seems to be, according to about a zillion comments anyway, a major factor on if a bike is good or not, and if people are going to consider buying it. And I'm sort of always lost about this one. I've owned press fit bikes for four years at a time, five years. I've owned many bikes with threaded bottom bracket shells. Um, you know, I was a mechanic for a long time before doing this job and worked on all sorts of different bottom brackets. And guess what? They all creak sometimes. You know how many creaky threaded bottom brackets I've had to deal with? Like a zillion. And I've had to deal with creaky press fit ones as well too. Now, the one thing here obviously is how easy they are to work on in a press fit job requires maybe a little more care and some special tools or skills with your big flat blade screwdriver to not wreck things. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I mean that it does require a special tool, but so does your threaded bottom bracket. So, I mean, I get not being a fan of one or the other, maybe you've had some bad experiences, but I think it's crazy that people get so wound up about bottom brackets, guys. What do you think? Yeah, these days I'd say that both work well, but if I had to pick, I'd still go threaded just because I just prefer the ease of threading and installing it. It's a little bit less caveman-like to just have you ever Have you ever wrecked threads in a bottom bracket shell? Nah, I don't think I have. Oh. No, well, I definitely careful. have. I mean, you yeah. could wreck anything. You know, if you don't have yeah, the right I mean, tools and you're anything. rushing. I mean, I guess the good news with the press fit, you always have the right tools since you just need a hammer, so you're fine. So there's that's the benefit. The reason that PressFit exists is that it's lighter and cheaper to manufacture and you can make it stiffer for the same amount of material. Those are the claims. Um, I don't think anybody knows the difference. No, nobody says nobody says that it's nobody says that it's cheaper, but it is cheaper. That's why all the manufacturers want to do it, is it's it's an easier way to do it. And I would say that the reason people care so much is that the manufacturing wasn't as good at doing it when they started doing it as they are now 
yeah. press fit bottom brackets today are a lot more round, a lot more better tolerances than 10 years ago. Dude, I've built bikes with threaded bottom brackets that arrived with mm-hmm. issues in the threads too. Like, they, I guess They're my certainly point not is yeah. issues. Is it both have issues? And I'm not saying PressFit doesn't have issues or threaded doesn't have issues. I'm just saying it's a very silly thing to take into consideration when purchasing a bicycle. Maybe unless you have a set of cranks already you want to put on. I don't know. I just made a lot of people mad, I feel like. I think that... I think you can oversympathize with a bike mechanic. Mm-hmm. I think the people, oh, you don't understand, you know, poor Rodrigo, he, he's not going to be able to tackle a threaded bottom bracket, or whatever. And it's just like, well, sorry, pressman. It's like that person is going to work it out, and it's fine. It's not a big deal. But I used to work in bike shops, and people bought in the bike. <gasps> you know, they've been on the internet and they've heard that press fit bottom bracket's the worst in the world. I'm sorry. It's a press fit bottom bracket. Heaven forbid. It's like, it's all right. It's like, I've I got, got a hammer. big chisel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's fine. <laughs> well, I think in this, you know, environmentally conscious world we live in, yeah. you want to buy the cups once and the bearings need to be for sale aftermarket. If that's one thing that's going to change the bottom brackets, that'd be the best thing. So you get your cups and then you get your bearings. That's, that's what needs to happen. Ideally, you'd get your bearings for $10 from the machine shop. I think ten dollars is a little, a little. I think you should get free bearings for life. Um, you know, <laughs> we're just trying to make fans in this podcast, Henry. <laughs> I know. I'm, I've already stepped on so many toes. They're probably going to be like, like yeah. Henry Quinney, that racist sympathizer, <laughs> threaded bottom bracket killer. <laughs> okay, but at least, but at least he's got sensible opinions about cable routing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I am right about cable routing. I Let's go care. to cable routing. Let's oh, go to okay, cable bring routing. Bring it. Okay, Let's for go. me. For me, that's a detail. Again, it doesn't overly matter. I love a clean looking bike, but I appreciate all the cables on the outside and I would not have a problem with it. Henry, start Mm -hmm. talking, make everybody angry. Okay, so bikes, everything is about parallel lines. Okay, it's about parallel lines and them not touching. So things need to come off out your head tube at the same angle to one another on the different sides of the bike. And they need to have the same curvature going to the... This is road housing. bike talk. It's not. It's mountain bike talk. Because you look at this. This isn't a weed whacker. This isn't an agricultural piece of machinery. This is a $7,000 thing. It should look absolutely fantastic. And so what needs to happen is the cables need to only touch the frame at the point of entry. So for instance, it absolutely does mind nothing to see front brake hoses that rub on the fork leg before they get to the little grommet. Oh, it needs yeah. to go straight there. And then from there, it needs to go straight to the brake. And similarly, you know, it needs to go straight in, out. No no funny business. And you see all these crap convoluted ways of getting around the fact that we should just put the cables inside the frame by having covers on the down tube and then it comes out and it's like the spaghetti junction of just cables rubbing everywhere. And it's mad. It's so bad. Henry, are you are you on team same side or opposite side for... Cable same entry. side same side cross. so if you go from your shifter your shifter on the right into the right side of the bike yeah and it's because it's because that's why having options is so important and basically i just want rubber grommets in the frame so i can choose which way i do it because obviously i run my brakes left hand rear. wrong you know i've run the left hand rear i don't i don't i don't have it that's one thing i actually don't have any stock in i wish i ran the other way around but i don't so <laughs> you can learn yeah just try you I, don't don't try. Try. I think you can learn. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. Don't try, actually. I tried Please don't. Work. <laughs> yeah. 
Since we're talking about cable routing, I would like to call out all the companies that do internal cable routing that isn't tube in tube or that requires me to take a bottom bracket out to deal with internal uh, dropper post lines. Can I just say, on external no. routing, <laughs> do you know a company that does it really well? And it, and it, and it shows that external routing can look good, and that's Polar. Because it's all parallel to the tubing and mm-hmm. there's no funky business going on. And it, they, that looks really neat. I'm completely fine with that. So did you say, oh, is that how you pronounce Paul? Yeah. It's not oh. meant to be like in Finnish. I think it's like the word like, I let's like go like, Paula, Paula, Paula. It's not actually about poles of metal at all. Funny. I thought it was about, I thought it was like about the nationality, like Polish people. <laughs> but it's Finnish. You're I joking. know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I believe it's pronounced Polar. Anyway, and um, yeah, so that looks really neat. And GT system looks okay, but if the closer it can go to the front of the head tube, will make it look better as well. You want something that just goes bam in, no messing about. I think we can all agree that going in through the headset cup is not acceptable. I'm not liking all those I see, like all those. I think it's good, no? Headsets. Yeah, it's a big hole at the top of your headset, and you just dump dirt into it yeah is, dirt is that problem, worse yeah. is that worse than having you know holes in the frame that you just that, you know yes it is a worse. bad a, a bad design's a bad design there can be good executions or bad executions a bad yeah. execution of that is going to be crap but if it's executed well then what's the point what's the problem okay it looks amazing i guess i just haven't seen a good iteration of it yet and i haven't yet i'm waiting for a gearbox bike too so fuck. <laughs> <laughs> okay that's enough cable talk Let's talk about another detail that I think some people get too fussed about as well. Frame material. Casimir, if I was to blindfold you, the bike weighed the same. It's made of, one is made of carbon fiber. It's the exact same bike. One's made of carbon, one's made of aluminum. I blindfold you. You think you could tell the difference? 30 feet down the trail, horrific crash. Yeah. Blindfolded. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not convinced I could. I mean, yeah, I don't... I'd like to think I could, but I don't think I could. There's so many exact other same way, exact going. same everything. Yeah. yeah. What about what about aluminum to steel to titanium, etc.? I mean, they might feel different, but I don't think I'd be like, "Ooh, this is definitely the titanium bike. This is definitely the maybe the sound. The sound might give it away. If I smashed it on rocks, I bet I could tell the difference between exactly frame versus <laughs> like twang crunch. Like, oh yeah, I got it. <laughs> I I guess. I'm using this as an excuse to say I wish that we saw more aluminum frame-only options because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Your trail bike weighs 32 pounds. But this goes back to the weight, though. You yeah, can't pound of weight. So. <laughs> it's like Levy, proponent of lightweight bikes, also calls for more aluminum frame-only options. Yeah, make also them light. Also, internal... Yeah, that cable routing is a lot easier to execute in the carbon if you want that nice internal cable routing to the carbon sure. with the tubes. We've only got a couple more left here. What about fork offset? Is that something you guys are concerned about as much as other people? No, I think that, you know, I'm glad it's gone this way. It all makes sense on paper, but the people that are obsessing over just like the, that level of minutia, if you're really obsessed with it, it doesn't make a difference and you'll get used to whatever you have really quickly. Like I, I had a fork for sale the other day. There was a 44 mil offset. And then the guy, he was interested and they said, oh no, I can't get it. I need 42 mils offset. I was like, that's impossible. You won't notice that. There's no one on earth that can notice two mils of offset difference. Henry, do you think you can notice, like, like I said, I'd like short offset, but I think I can get used to either one really easily. So have you, I, th- I think you can, I've done that back to back stuff, riding that Mork from Mojo. 
mm-hmm. you know, where you can adjust the offset. And I think you can, but I do think basically there are so many things in our brain that we're conditioned to know what the, where it is, where it's the bite point on breaks, you know, modulating them. I think it's just something that goes into that, goes into that many things and you do learn it really quick. However, one place I do like short offset forks and I think it does help is actually on really long bikes climbing with a short offset I think actually helps I think you can just get your that is a noticeable difference just to keep you just keep the front end weighted a bit yeah yeah it makes sense and it can kind of help with like the wheel you don't get as floppy of a feeling just the way that the yeah it changes it so. exactly but that but in terms of descending I think you get used to it then half a run be like yeah. this is it now you might notice it a bit if you're kind of dragging the front brake when perhaps you shouldn't but you shouldn't really be doing that anyway <laughs> so yeah, I think that, and it's kind of nice. It seems like it's all kind of settled out. Like all of a sudden, there was a wholesale sw- wholesale switch between offset, and now it's like, all right, this is what we do now, and we're in that boat now, and not getting out for a bit. So, do you think we'll go shorter? I realize we're getting off topic on details, but do you think we will end up at like a zero offset or a twenty offset or something at some point? I don't think so, but who knows? Like, I wouldn't have predicted the offset change in the last couple of years beforehand, so I'm not not sure. Um, I do feel like there will be a point where the handling would start feeling pretty weird. So, mm. Henry, you look like you're eager to share another detail that you're you're all amped up about here. <laughs> you know, when you look at other sports, I mean, even just like road cycling, whatever, and you see the technology that goes into their clothing, and they've got pockets galore, they've got all this stuff going on. Mountain bikers, we pay $100 for a jersey mm. that is basically a glorified t-shirt. And it just in, and then we're like, oh my god! They're, they're basically the bar's so low. We're like, oh my god! It doesn't give me nipple like nipple rush. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's a hundred dollars. That's the fucking least of its worries. It, you know, it's crazy to me how unpractical some mountain bike clothing is. I like, I get shorts that have pockets in them that don't fit a phone. And the argument, of course, is like, why are you bringing your phone with you? But I mean, I bring my phone with me so I can call somebody to come pull me out of the bush when I die you know like i'm bringing my phone with me i want to put it in a pocket on my shorts where it's invisible and every short should have something like that and same thing with jerseys too jerseys they put all this effort into like looking cool as fuck and they're just not practical they should have like some sort of small zippered pocket somewhere some do but basically this mountain bike clothing it's more fashion than function Go ahead, guys. It's amazing how many EWS folks you see with a phone in their pocket all race. Oh, they can check where they are in the standings with their. No, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's funny that we see a lot of pants being sold that don't really fit a phone or don't think about a phone. When so many pros, yeah, their phone is in their pocket whole time. How many of us? How many of us ride with keys though? You know, most people ride with keys in their pocket. I don't ride keys. No, no, I, I hide them on well, my get vehicle. House? They, they're them. hidden in my vehicle. Have you ever fallen on your keys, Henry? Well, that's exactly it. It's it's like it's basically a recipe for disaster. Why don't mountain bike pockets? They have some kind of padded pocket where you can put a key that you're not going to impale your leg. I just hide it somewhere. I don't ride with keys. I don't like them. You don't ride with keys? No, never. No, me neither. Okay, well, that's cat. Matt, I do a silly thing. Entirely. No, don't <laughs> you're going to say Henry looks silly now. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to ride with. No, no, I think I it's coming from the UK because you can't, you can't, you got to lock your front door, got to deadbolt that fucker. Yeah, you can't leave your key inside your car because that'll be gone. No, you put it inside. I'm not going to tell where I hide my key, but it's in my oh, car. He definitely puts it in the gas cap. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not in the gas cap, but it's in the other place there where he puts it. But like, oh, yeah, under the wheel. Then, well, the, all these uh, years I've been risking life and limb, severing yeah. arteries, no living need. dangerously. What, here's what here's what I do, which is really silly, but I I have lace up shoes 
one of my flat pedals, and I I'll usually throw my key in my shoe, like on, on the his whole keychain just shoved in his sock. <laughs> <laughs> just the one key, just the car key. Oh yeah. Wait, just, where do wait, you put your shoe as in a your pocket shoe? for a key? I'm missing something lovers? here. But that just that proves my point. That proves yeah. the point that shorts. You know exactly. If we if we're putting keys in shoes, shorts <laughs> have gone wrong. Yes, agree. That's yeah. fair. That's fair. Where do you put the key? So I've got one key, and I take I my lace and I put it through the laces as I tie my shoe, and then I tuck the key under the lace under the by You're the tongue. No, dead serious. You'd make a great really? drugs mule. I'm surprised. Yeah, this is amazing. So it make more sense to say you you're, put it as a suppository. You're out on a ride. You're out <laughs> I'm on just a ride. The keys. Yeah. And your key is under the laces on your shoe. Next time I see you mm-hmm. riding, yeah, the key is going to be under your laces on the shoe. Yeah. That's what I do. We uh, need to do a podcast about are, weird things that we all do. You are so Yeah, that's a weird one. <laughs> that's weird, man. Super weird. I don't want to get I've my shit a, stolen, and I don't want to get impaled. That doesn't seem... It seems practical I've got to a little me. bum bag that I use my... I put my phone in because I hate smashing phones, mm-hmm. and that's where I actually put my key. It's a little secret little number. You're like, but if now, I'm going to break my phone, I'm also going to break my spine. <laughs> basically, that... Well, yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a millennial, baby. If I lose my Instagram account, what's the point in life, quite frankly? <laughs> Maybe yeah. maybe we're completely out to lunch, guys. You guys out there listening, tell us in the comments, do you guys store your key in in your shoe when you go riding? In your shoe? In your shoe. <laughs> I can't In your shoe. It's I'm so waiting normal. for Brian's Cinderella moment where someone goes around trying to find just so he can get back home. <laughs> he has a crash and loses his shoe on the trail. He's going to get those shoes that have like a secret compartment in the bottom of them. Oh, the like, stash shoes. Like, yeah. Can, the new SWAT shoes are coming, guys. Special yeah. SWAT shoes. You, you can put an energy bar, your keys, deeds to your house, your passport. It lowers your center of gravity too, so they're way better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that final weird detail is a good place to move on to comment gold. And our first one, this is on the Hey Outers podcast. JF94 says... Hopefully outside covers therapy as part of their insurance plan. I mean, we we did whine a bit in that podcast. <laughs> it does, though. It does cover mental health. That's good. So the commenters yeah. can be even more savage, and we'll just go to yeah. therapy. Yeah. Can, they just, can they just buy Brian a set of shoes that... I don't know. What, it's not the shoes that the problem is. Sorry. I'm, I'm hanging up. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I've never felt so self-conscious about this before. Nobody, Nobody else does noticed that, before. No one does that. Nobody. I can't wait to go ride with you and see your key shoe. You're not even going to notice. Key. You can't see it. It's just I'll see it now. In. You won't. Send us a picture. We'll put it in okay. the podcast. <laughs> That's the single weirdest detail or like weird thing that people do that I've ever heard of. I feel oddly violated. I can't explain it. <laughs> Do you look down to make sure it's still there? No. No, it's I, supposed to his laces. Oh, okay, yeah. No, it's to his laces. So you undo... Like, do you un do you undo the laces all the way and then tie it through? <laughs> Why didn't I'm, you tell me this before I moved to Canada? I didn't realize I was going to be working for a second fucking psychopath. <laughs> We're going to end this podcast. Okay, our last comment gold... Everybody, this is from Trail Squatch. He says, haven't listened yet, but I'm hoping this is, this is the announcement of Levy and Casimir leaving to start their own site, Mike Bike. Yeah, we could probably do that. Until it all imploded response, about a week later. Yeah. There's a response to though. that is from iMan. He says, hey, Mikers. <laughs> now I feel violated. Yeah, that's how I'm going to start the next podcast. <laughs> all right, everybody, that is it. 
for today's podcast where we cover the details, the details that we think make sense and the details that we think are a little crazy. Let us know in the comments, did any of that make sense? And tell us what are some details that you're concerned about that maybe we think would be weird. Are you guys concerned about things that we didn't even mention? Maybe there's something we're totally out to lunch on. And let us know if you disagree with us because we have therapy covered now. So now you can attack us. (laughs) All right, everybody, we'll see you next episode.